Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, a woman's way to freedom, power, love, and magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Before we dive into this week's episode, I'd like to tell you about Storyweaver Book Coaching. This is support for memoirists, thought leaders, and creative entrepreneurs at the beginning of their writing journey. You've got stories to tell. You feel like you've got a book inside of you. Before you can weave your visions into the chapters and birth this book into the world, you've got a lot of untangling and imagining to do. And that's where I come in. I can help you explore your personal experiences, get clear on your big ideas, and get clarity on what makes your book unique and compelling. I'm here as a sounding board and a thought partner. I'll ask tough questions and also give you a safe space to land. When it's time to start putting words on the page, I can be your trusted first set of eyes, and we can begin to craft your manuscript together. Learn more over at my website, marisagowdy.com. Let's talk and see if Storyweaver Book Coaching might be just what you're looking for. Well, I am so happy to share this episode with my friend, Elizabeth Shaw. I'm really excited for where our conversation is going to go about hospitality and any number of other topics. But as is our way at Not Work Storytelling, first we ask the story to speak for itself, and then we'll dive in to why and how it still matters. This wasn't always my story to tell. It was my father's story, my foster father's story, my husband's story. But still, I was mentioned on the very second line. I'm staking my claim now and taking my place at its beginning, middle, and end. I declare I shall no longer play second fiddle in this tale. Oh, but if there were fiddles in my day, they would have played all night long in my foster father's hall. Bucket was the foremost host in all of Leinster. They called him the cauldron of hospitality, and it was a glory to share his table. I always sat beside him and shared the host's portion. It was my due because I was a king's daughter, but it was also my pleasure. Bucket was the father my father couldn't be. He had no children of his own, and his wife was a ghost of a woman who was no use as a hostess. Crowds made her faint, and noise gave her a sick headache. <sighs> she was kind enough, but she was no mother to me. I didn't need her. I had him. Bucket claimed me as daughter and closest kin, and I took my place beside him and did my part to hold his court. And what a court it was. All knowledge and wit, all power and abundance. At least it was until the sons of Cahar came to call. Thirty-two brothers. Yes, that's right. One score and twelve. They'd come galloping in like a plague of locusts on horseback, 
all full of insatiable appetites and hideous manners. Their jokes were lewd, their stories tedious. They bellowed over the bards and broke a priceless harp in a brawl over a chicken leg. Book it, cauldron of hospitality and friend to all, always welcomed them with good humor. He kept a smile on his face, regardless of how rude they became or how long the nights dragged on. In the early days, when I first arrived in the household, Bucket would look to me to intervene. Now, he wasn't so foolish as to think that these boars would listen to a young maiden like me. He just hoped that I might know a secret, being their sister and all. That's right, that battalion of brothers belonged to me. But they thought no more of their little sister, Ethna, than they thought of a filly not yet old enough to carry a man. I was the 33rd and final child of King Kahar My mother was his fifth wife and had birthed 11 living baby boys before she breathed her last breath, just as I took my first. A tragic story, to be sure, but not one that I spent much time on. I was a lass raised in a man's world, and now that I lived in Bookett's household, I finally found a place where I could retain my womanhood and still thrive. Any trace of respect and esteem I gathered to me would dissolve when Cahar's horde came to call, however. We looked forward to their departures and prayed they would find a hearth that they preferred more than ours, but they just kept coming as regularly as rain comes to the west of Ireland. My foster father was a great man, but he was not the good god Dagda. Bucket was a mortal man who relied on fields, herds, and flocks to fill his cookpots. His very real cauldron of hospitality was not a divine one blessed with bottomless wealth. Always retaining his smile and his generous spirit, he gave and gave until he was diminished to one last bull and a final seven heifers. He went to Cahar Moor when he had no choice left. He pleaded his case and asked their royal father, my royal father, to restrain his voracious, oblivious brood. But that man, that king I will not call father ever again, he simpered and whimpered like a toddler weaned on watered milk. He showed he wasn't worth the throne he sat upon when he threw up his hands and declared he could not control 32 wild princes, not when he himself had spent 50 winters on the throne. Cahar, who deserves not the moniker more, which means great, offered a stale crust of wisdom when he acknowledged that Bukit could never, would never, defy the sacred rights and obligations of hospitality. You cannot bar your door and remain an honorable man. To you, I know that would be death. The only option? Exile. Flee these lands and set up a quiet household. You must retire to a quiet life. Bucket showed neither disappointment nor heartbreak when he heard the edict of his weakling king, but I know he was devastated. He told me so when he confided in me that he and his way-faced wife were going to pack up in the dark of night. He was trying to bid me farewell because he could no longer offer me a princess's portion in the reduced accommodation he was bound to find on the far side of the plain. I regained all the strength that was drained from me in my brother's presence 
and I made it clear. My place was with him. It would be enough to hold up a board with my knees and his. We would call that a worthy household and a proper table. I had waited too many years to find a family, and I would not let it go simply because Bucket lost everything because of my birth father's feeble will. And so we packed what we could carry in the dark of night. Herself sat on the only donkey, while Bucket and I led what was left of the herd. Even the horses had been sold off to pay for that last feast, which we had borne with false smiles and concealed sighs. It had never hurt so much to fill my belly as it did when that last pig was served. Though disgraced by poverty, Bucket's honor was still intact. His pride meant that we could not impose ourselves on another's charity, though it was our right, not when he could not reciprocate. But he did welcome aid from the old companions who showed us to an abandoned hunter's cabin deep in the woods. We settled in and learned new skills. I became as handy with a bow as I had been with my little knife. Protecting myself from wolves was easier than protecting myself from drunken, lecherous hands. My fair skin grew brown and my fingers rough. There was harmony amongst us three, even if we came to realize my foster father's wife wasn't just enfeebled by noise and crowds, but also by quiet and hard work. The seasons wheeled through the heavens and we marked them without ritual or feast. One day, an unfamiliar sound echoed through our glen, the hoofbeats of a strong stallion. I hadn't seen a young man in recent memory, so I couldn't be sure if this fellow was in fact handsome or if my eyes were starved for the straight line of a young jaw and the span of strong straight shoulders. He stopped his horse and requested, no, demanded, a sip of water. I was as tan as a dairy maid, and my apron was spattered with milk and mud and muck. I looked like a servant's servant, and I knew it. But I didn't like that man's tone. He had no right to know my name nor my rank, but he also had no right to speak to me like a common crofter's daughter. I stood firm and told him to get off his horse and look me in the eye and patiently wait for me to bid him welcome so I could offer hospitality as a gift, not as a response to bullying or coercion. I'd had enough of that. This intrigued him, and I tasted a new combination I couldn't yet name. When I grew a little older and a lot more experienced, I would know this potent combination of lust and rage. If I'm honest, it's what my husband and I would most appreciate in one another in the decades to come. At the start, I told you that the scribes would have it that I was a mere player in my husband's story. I'll tell you now that this stranger on the road looking at a nut brown maid would soon be my husband. And if you want to think that he was a kidnapping brigand and I was some wilted victim, stop now. I'll tell you the real story. My childhood hadn't been a pleasant one. And now we were certainly living rough. But my soon-to-be husband, Cormac, he did not have it easy himself. He was like a great bull kept hungry in a tight corral while his herd feasted without him. He was waiting on the kingship of Tara, which was not the way any of it was supposed to be. That old bitch Maeve, she wouldn't give up her husband's throne. 
King Art had been a good man in his way, but that wife, oh, she was just some lesser king's daughter grown too accustomed to the fine court and hall. She had no right to cling to the throne that Cormac had earned. He showed what a worthy sovereign he'd be when he practiced restraint and didn't pull that stepmother of his off the throne by the roots of her graying hair. And I know some of you are pricking up those ears, assuming I'm name dropping. You're assuming that I'm some sad, jealous thing. But I don't mean that Maeve, not the great queen of Connacht herself. If the Maeve you know was still alive in my day, I might have left Bucket when his household was dissolved and gone to join hers. But alas, that Queen Maeve had ruled in my great-great-grandfather's time. As they say, they don't make them like they used to. I'll tell you true. When Cormac came to me, he was a tad bitter about his whole family feud. But at the same time, I was a tad bitter myself because, of course, I had yet to make my own peace with my own father, with Carter Moore, for acting so puny and pathetic in the face of my own 32 bloody brothers. Certainly none of those boyos were worth the throne. Certainly Cahar Moore was too blind to see that he had his own Maeve of Connacht right there at the end of his family line. Certainly he let me go without a real care for my future at all. I had been overlooked by all but my foster father, who would have given me a throne if he had one to give. But Cormac? He saw something in me, and I will swear it was more than the swell of a bosom and the arch of a lip. The stories have it that he carried me off. The stories have it that I was his victim. I will tell you now, I was no man's victim. Not my 32 brothers, and not all the men who used to hang about the high table at Bucket's fine house, not the highwaymen that would come by our little cabin in the woods. Let it be known that I was taken, taken with lust and longing and rebellion taken with fear and frustration and anger that I had no outlet when I lived alone with a kind and quiet soul like my foster father. I was my own woman and I was sovereign, or at least I was learning how to be so at that very moment. I was not just taken by a man. I was taken with a man. And so, if anyone saw us, Cormac and me, they witnessed harsh words and a challenging gaze. I wasn't going to go easy. I didn't trust him. Oh, but I liked the smell of him. The sovereign of sovereigns, Queen Maeve, my true queen, she could tell the strength of a man with one sniff of his hide. I don't think it had a thing to do with muscles or title. Whether she'd offer a warrior the friendship of her thighs, she just knew, and I just knew even if the boldness I imagined was not nearly enough to cover my absolute inexperience. Because I do talk a tough story now. Now I have some knowledge of Maeve's ways and what it was like to have a string of lovers, but then I was so damnably young. I sat by Bucket's elbow at his great feast because he made me feel important and wise but also because I was scared of those hairy jaws and the testosterone that hung around them like thunderclouds. I must admit, I hadn't even been kissed the day Cormac came to call. 
I went because I wanted to. I went and I wanted. I was wanted and I was taken. You can read between the lines of the story the men told. You can read that I was carried off and you can see me as a pathetic, violated creature. Or you can see me as a whore. For all of human history, you and I can remember there were no other options. Not really for a pregnant teen. But I can see how it looked bad. The way we had that one night together and I, as they say, escaped the very next day before the light even filled the sky. When Cormac and I first met, I was there with the cows outside of our meager cottage. It seemed to me an accident that this fine man came riding up our backwoods trail. Part of me believed that goddess Danu herself had decided it was finally time for me to meet my match. Only the next morning, when my lover's voice was thick with sleep, did I learn the truth. Oh, sure, said Cormac, a lazy hand cupping my bum. It was a pity that Bucket didn't give me your hand when I asked for it. But maybe the love is sweeter for carrying you off in secret. I am not sure if it was supposed to be some sort of romantic gesture or what, but I was sure to claw at his face as I ripped myself from our bed, spitting like a cat. Bucket, what do you know of my foster father? What do you mean he wouldn't give you my hand? You knew who I was when you came to me in the Glen? You pretended to be a stranger and you pretended to love my eyes and the freckles on my nose and even the calluses on my palms. You pretended you could see the nobility in me because you had some special eyes to see, not because you knew my name and my father's name. Wait, you know Kahar Moore too, don't you? You greedy, conniving, half-wit, would-be king. I hope that old Bessem lives forever and your balls shrivel before you ever take the throne. And with that, I ran out into the dawn, throwing my gown over my shoulders and hips as I fled from his fort and ran my way home. I don't know who I was angriest at. Cormac for tricking me. Bucket for answering in my name. Kahar for allowing the ruin of the only home I'd ever loved. Myself for being the bloody girl who kept being carted off from one hearth to another upon another man's whim. When I got back, Bucket was there to greet me. He wept with relief, and I forgave him instantly. When, with eyes all wrecked with sorrow, he told me his greatest regret was that he didn't have the power to give another my hand, should I want the union. He was too kind to say that Cormac had already more than proven his unworthiness with his little ruse. Life reverted to much as it had before. We three in that tiny cabin. Mrs. Bucket was still like a shade in my life, but it was she who pointed at my belly a few moons later and asked me what on earth I was going to do. It wasn't until that moment I could finally admit it to myself. I was with child, and I still longed for the duplicitous rogue who had planted that seed. Eventually, quite soon really, it was all arranged. It was bloody awful, the whole process, but the marriage was arranged. Bucket went to Cormac to tell him our little news. Cormac didn't like the way I had run out on him, and he had it known that I was some sort of flighty flight risk. Bucket suggested that Cormac would surely get the answer he most desired when he went to Cahar Moore to ask for my hand. 
But that stubborn bastard I would soon call my betrothed made a great show of going to sit with my brothers and father to ask assurance of my virtue and character. Only after they all swore I was a dull little nut-brown maid who was more mother superior than mighty Queen Maeve would he agree to marry me. I met with him the night before we were to wed. I reminded him that he must have forgotten the woman he met that day on the road. That woman he took to his bed was young and new, but had her own sovereign power, too. I threatened to throw myself into the River Liffey if Cormac paid my bride price to Cahermore. I forced the promise that Bucket would be given lands as far as a young man could see from the rampart of Kells. I secured a promise for gold and silver, herds and bondmaids, and a cauldron so big it could fit three men inside it. And if my brothers came to call, my husband would pay their maintenance and more, so that Bucket could never be robbed blind by my wicked family again. It was there, at Bucket's grand new home, that we celebrated our wedding feast. Fifty harps, a chorus of fifty warriors and fifty maidens. I even got to know some of those women and knew female friendship for the first time in my life. I won't lie to you. Those first years were tempestuous. I gave birth to a healthy baby boy in Cormac's tiny fort, still in the shadow of that pretender queen. That river that I said I would drown myself in, our son grew to love that water and took it as his namesake, and I never had to make good on my threat. Bucket's fortune only grew, and he continued as before, the cauldron of hospitality who made everyone feel welcome especially me. Even after I was a wife and mother, even after we took Tara as our own and I was named queen, I still spent long spells at my foster father's fireside. It was, after all, the only place I ever truly felt at home. And that is the story of Ethna. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for sitting with me as that story spun out. I really chose this story with you in mind because when you look in the books of Celtic and Irish mythology for the word hospitality, that is the first story that comes up. And for those of you who know you well, hospitality is the first word that comes up when they think of Elizabeth Shaw too. So thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you for having me. And what a rich gift of a story that was. There was so many layers and just little nuggets throughout it. I'm excited to dive deeper with you. Yes. Oh, hooray. I'm glad you're here. So let's begin at the top. Let's begin with the kind of the headline of the story and hospitality. I'd love to hear what lights up for you first. That image of a cauldron of hospitality, just, it's like a title unto itself. Almost even better than being king, especially the king in this story. <laughs> and to be, to be gifted with that title, whether you are Bucket, <laughs> as we are calling him, it is a tough name. Before you go on, I'll offer a real quick sideline on that. That yes, we've been laughing about this name because it's hard to make it pretty. It's not 
an etymologically Irish word, so you can't even call him bookish or add anything to it in a way that makes you feel like you're pronouncing it with aplomb. Great scholarly papers have been written on the mystery of where the word comes from. So there was a man who was a cauldron who was also called Bucket. Okay. <laughs> But what I loved about this story, aside from just that strong image of what hospitality is and can be, is all of the different ways that hospitality shows up and the nuances of it. And hospitality is everything from how we welcome people into our homes to the ways we create chosen families. Yeah. So hospitality is a key aspect of Irish and Celtic culture. It goes all the way back to the Brehan laws, which are rooted back in the time of the Druids, went all the way through the medieval period, through the kings, and still exists today. There's an article I just found on RTE, which is the Irish television network, in ways in which welcoming in refugees, particularly from Ukraine right now, is another aspect of Irish hospitality that is both a very lived expression of what it means to be Irish, but it's also encoded in the law itself. And so I love that kind of multiplicity of it, that it once upon a time it was the code and now it's just the way things are. So you have a specific way of looking at hospitality and I'd love to talk a little bit about that. Well, thanks for sharing that history too, because before I dive into my view of hospitality, I was just reflecting on the difference in the cultures of hospitality and how it is so ingrained in the Irish culture that you are expected to welcome others and care for others. Mm -hmm. And that's not always true for us here in the States. That's not a given that if someone knocks on your door, you invite them in for tea. But even, even though this goes back to the time of the Druids, I know the last time I visited Ireland, I met someone in town and they invited me over to their house for tea. <laughs> what a beautiful thing to have as the foundation of your culture is this expectation of hospitality. And for me, the way that I define hospitality is or approach hospitality is making others feel seen welcomed and well cared for. Mm. And that we see that in the story in so many ways. It's in the way that Bucket welcomes people into his home with his cauldron of hospitality and the endless feasts and harps and merriment that happens. But also the way that he cares for our heroine mm. and gives her a safe space to really discover and and grow into her sovereignty and understand that. And many people think of hospitality as that single vein of whether you welcome people into your home or whether you serve them food or give them a place to sleep. But hospitality is really just in how we interact and engage with others and give them space to show up and thrive. Mm. And I love that sort of expansion of the definition because you and I have spoken many times before and I think I have confided in you like, I think I'm a really terrible hostess. <laughs> Can you please teach me your ways, oh Elizabeth? 
I have people coming in for the weekend and I'm mostly excited they're coming, but I also might want to hide behind the door. (laughs) And I admit that's a difficult thing to say out loud. It's, you know, you don't really want to say I'm a terrible hostess, but I guess all my listeners and you know that now. And you know that I would strongly dispute that you are a terrible hostess because I think you are, and many of us do this, we set a bar of hospitality or hosting to perhaps what we saw our mothers do when we were growing up or what we were told we should do as women. Mm -hmm. To be the ideal hostess, you must have a perfectly clean house and trays of food ready to serve for anyone who comes by and the appropriate topics of conversation that don't make anyone feel uncomfortable or challenged. That's not real life. Real Mm -hmm. life is not about having a cheese tray always on the ready in your refrigerator. And that's usually not what people want or need when they show up for hospitality. They want to be invited into an experience with you. And you are just impeccable at inviting people into conversation and experience, which I think makes you a stellar hostess. Well, I'm very fortunate in that I'm married to a stellar host who makes sure that I don't burn the dinner (laughs) while I am carrying on the conversation because, you know, (laughs) podcast hosting is definitely in my skill set as is keeping the conversation going and making sure that no one's glass is empty. The other parts with remembering the cheese, this is a reason why solid partnerships are very important too. (laughs) Well, and I think hospitality enforces community. And that's, Mm. you know, when you go back to the traditional Irish expectation and ways of hospitality, it was never reliant on one person providing everything. Right. It was on a household, on a tribe, on a full community. And so often we, in our individualistic society today, think that we have to do it all ourselves. And that robs us from the full experience because it's hard to juggle all the things. Right. And I think we've touched on this in various ways. We've made it very gendered. We've made it into the apron and that sense of acting as if you just always have it so effortlessly together. The cheese tray, there's no dirty dishes in the sink. The cat hair levels are not embarrassing. Again, I'm revealing a lot about my own home. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it's the stacks of papers everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember seeing once some meme about, quick, hurry up. We don't want our family and friends to actually know we live this way. (laughs) (laughs) You know, which in a world where we talk about authenticity and how important it is to be genuine, it's just very interesting how sometimes that is only screen deep and the thought of heaven forbid someone should actually see what's on the other side of the door. There's an interesting kind of level of vulnerability and performativity and sort of this divisions of modern life, right? That seem very different than the olden days from whatever we can imagine of the Irish medieval period and and beyond. And I don't know about you, but for me, some of my most impactful hospitality experiences 
come from that really vulnerable and authentic moment. It's the stranger saying, I'm going to give you a ride to the train station in my car that has not been cleaned in months. And I'm not going to worry about the pretense of it because I see you as someone that's in need and I can see that need and care for you in a really tangible way. And that clearly was a story that just came to mind of of my past experience of someone expressing hospitality to me. But even my, my most genuine friendships, the ones I feel the most true hospitality are the ones when they don't need to clean their house for me to show up and I don't need to clean my house for them to show up. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. So to shift us back to the story, just for a moment, I, in writing it and owning my own story of hospitality, Ethna is not me in many, many ways. She is (laughs) not me. This is the first time I've ever written a story in the first person. And I think in part, it was because I needed to figure out what makes her tick. She's at the heart of this original story we have in the manuscripts, but her character needed to be revealed. And in a story about hospitality, she did not factor in as a hostess. So instead, I wrote her, felt it was revealed to me that hostessing and hospitality is something that she appreciates and can support But it wasn't necessarily something that she felt she had to offer herself. And I think in part, that's because she was never well-resourced enough to hold court. I think perhaps when she became Queen Ethna and she was married to Cormac, though she always appreciated Bucket's hearth the most, then she felt able to give. And so I think there's an element here of wanting hospitality to spring forth and be a very natural, of course, we give and give, but you also can't pour from an empty cup in the same way that Bucket could no longer keep giving when he had no herds remaining, nothing left. So that idea of giving when you have something to give is kind of an interesting balance from that sense of, knowing that in so many ways you look and you realize it's the poorest amongst us who often donate the most to charity and give the most. It's a really interesting and difficult paradox. It's one of the nuances of the story that I really appreciate because to your point about the gendered roles too, the story starts with Bucket as the father figure being the host and being the cauldron of hospitality. And it was not dependent on Ethna being a hostess or being the maiden that cleaned up after everyone or took care of everything behind the scenes. Like she had her place at Bucket's right hand and she got to just revel in that hospitality and be cared for in it. And I think that so often as women, we are, we feel that expectation, whether it's societal or in our families or just culturally the ways that we've been raised, that we should always be that cauldron of hospitality, whether we have something to give or not. And as you highlighted, this story reminds us that that's not always the case and that we 
can allow ourselves to receive hospitality. And we need to so that we can be equipped to offer it in the future. Right. So as is so often the way when we embody our own work, I recognize now (laughs) as we're talking how everything I write, especially when it comes to a heroine story, looks at the sovereignty archetypes that I've developed in my previous work with this idea of the princess, the queen, and the wise woman. And the fact that Ethna is princess to the core until the very end of the story when she has that chance to give birth and speak her truth and find her way. But it's when we're in that princess aspect of our lives that it's more than okay for us to go on the big journey, to be taken care of, to sit there and be prized as good company rather than as the one who's holding space for everyone. And in that idea of the princess, queen, and wise woman, I realized too that this is a story without a wise woman. And that was a pretty deliberate construction because we don't have a story that's always perfectly well-balanced. And if there is a wise woman figure, of course... It's a man. It's Bucket. He's the one who holds that space because it doesn't always have to be a female role that's being held. Yeah, the fluidity of our genders and roles. That comes up a lot through this story. One thing I really love about the princess archetype and how Athna embodies it is that she doesn't ever apologize for receiving hospitality. And I know something I struggle with a lot is I love to extend hospitality to others. And then I feel guilty in receiving hospitality. I feel like somehow I've failed in some way because I need to be seen and cared for by someone else. Mm. And that's just a really unfortunate way of seeing and experiencing hospitality. And I know I'm not alone in it. Right. Because we need that giving and receiving and that fluidity to go back and forth because we can't count on just one person to be the cauldron of hospitality all the time. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Reciprocity is at the heart of so much of this, of all of everything. And it was highlighted in the story even when, when they had to move to the little cabin and Bucket didn't want to accept others' hospitality because he knew he had nothing else to give in return. Right. Right. Which is, yeah, it's a tragedy in and of itself because of course, you know, everyone would have loved to give to him. After all those years, he probably hadn't gone to stay in anybody's house in ages. (laughs) They were looking forward to having him there. And he denied people his company because you can't believe that someone is the cauldron of hospitality just because they've always got extra soup on the hob. You know, it had to have been that he had a genuine warmth and an ability to make everyone around him feel wanted and seen. And he denied them that when he went off and hid in the woods. And it's a good reminder of the different seasons we go through, that there Mm. will be seasons that whether we're in our princess archetype or going through a challenging time that doesn't feel princessy at all. But that we might not be in a position to give hospitality. And then there will be other times where we feel an abundance of ability to to extend hospitality to others. And reciprocity is lovely, and it also doesn't have to be immediate. 
Right. Yes. A hundred percent. When you name challenge, I want to name the other thing that's at the center of this story that you and I discussed at length as I was starting to say, okay, Elizabeth, I found the perfect story, but there's this not at all small matter of a sexual assault at the middle of it. And mythology is full of rape. Mythology is full of women being carted away against their will or otherwise, and perhaps being seen as victim or whore for having had sex out of wedlock or having you know, been treated like a bit of baggage who was taken to another place and used in war or in part of the story. And I started doing research around just the contemporary perspective on that because, of course, feminism and women's studies critique has been pointing this out for some decades now. When these stories were originally redacted, when they were translated and, and put into forms now, didn't seem like there was any real remarking on the fact that at the center of the story, Cormac picked up Ethna, took her to his castle, she escaped the next day, and she was pregnant. It was really all that it said in the story. And as I spoke to you about it, I really was struggling with how do we tell a story that's about hospitality and has what really seems like, like I said, a sexual assault at the center of it. And I chose to write it that it was, it, was a, it was a complicated thing. It was that sense of your first time with a sexual experience and leaving home is never all clear cut. But I think there was also that element you and I kind of talked about like, oh my God, there's 32 brothers that made one place into a, <laughs> like an absolute horrible college party scene. And there's also a potential rape at the center of it. This is a very real story that we see in all kinds of different shades and colors in the modern world as well. One of the things that I love about this story in its origin, but also now especially as you have shared it with us today, is that nuance of life. If there is not, even in hospitality, a clear cut, this is the ideal story and ideal experience, mm -hmm. because that's not real life. There's never, even when you visit a five-star resort and have the most impeccable of experiences, it's a little bit like a fairy tale or a dreamland. And then you come back to reality. And the story is all about the reality of mm -hmm just how complicated life is yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. nuances of life. Right. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that we had talked about too, when we were addressing how to move forward with this story is that even in a story about hospitality that has mm -hmm. this frat house scene and this rape in the middle of it, it highlights for us some of those elements of hospitality and what is not hospitality? Mm -hmm. You know, it goes back to the being seen, being welcomed, which I also call the invitation, mm -hmm. and being cared for. Right. And you see the trajectory of what happens when those elements are neglected, mm -hmm. when people are not actually extending invitations or listening to responses, right. 
or not truly caring for others in their story or in their space. Right. Safety as an absolute essential tenet of hospitality is in certain scenes, I think gets to be like, it's just assumed, right? But knowing that we're all such fragile creatures, whether it's in terms of someone who suffered trauma and may have a, a trigger for a certain situation, even if it's down to just saying, what are your food allergies and how can I make this space safe for you? It is that sense of necessity to have a conscious negotiation around, well, what is it that you need in order to feel welcome and feel safe in this space? And though it wasn't necessarily reflected in the story, it was actually reflected in you and I sort of negotiating before I set out to really put this into words, what sort of story can we tell that feels good and safe and something we want to enjoy together that isn't totally dodging the source material because we feel uncomfortable, but adds nuance and enough other layers because I would argue that it's very important we look back and look at the situations of abuse and real trauma in mythology and in past stories, but also to recognize that sometimes everything was looked at with a pretty broad brush, that it was either you're a virgin or you're not, you're a woman of good character or you're not. And that gives us an opportunity to keep thinking about this particular story or any of them that says, wait, that seemed a little too easy to just decide she was bad or he was bad and she was carted off. Just as we know, any conversation we have is never that simple. And I feel like your retelling of the story really allowed Ethna to be seen. Mm. Because while she was an important character in the original story, it did often fall into that supporting character, secondary role, right? which we know every heroine has her own leading story role. Mm-hmm. And you conveyed that really beautifully. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So I would love to hear a little bit more about you and your kind of leading heroine story, knowing that you hold space for so many people and that's part of your magic. But I know you as such an innovator when it comes to helping others be seen and see their way forward to see how they will hold a space. Can you just tell us a little bit more about you and your work and how you put it in practice? Absolutely. Where to begin? (laughs) Sorry, I'm feeling like at a loss for words right now. Start in the place that you feel like you wouldn't start. Tell me about you as a writer. I feel like the most princess archetype when I am embodying my creative self and writing and showing up with any type of creative expression, which has expanded beyond that. But growing up, I Definitely took on the role of hostess a lot, even as a child, when my parents would throw Christmas parties, I was the one there standing at the door, taking people's coats and uh, refilling drinks from the age of maybe 10. And I used hospitality growing up as 
a way to make myself needed by others because it was a way for me to find belonging. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I needed to show up in service to other people for me to have value and worth. Mm -hmm. As a result of that, my career and my education and things like that were around what can I do to be of service and provide value to others? Mm -hmm. And to come back to the writing piece that you asked about, That is something that just brings me pure joy for myself. I know that it can be in service to others, but it's a chance for me just to shine in my own way without any expectation of what that is going to give me in terms of place or status or connection with others. It allows me just to be my own princess self. Just a very roundabout way of answering your question. But I think that that's a common story for many women, that we've used types of hospitality as a way to justify our presence or our worth or our value in situations of, I belong here if I can be of service to you. Mm -hmm. I belong here if I can keep that reciprocity just weighted a little bit more heavily in how much I've given than in how much I've received. Right. And part of the work that I'm doing now is merging this hospitality background. And I've had 20 years in events and hospitality in a professional way. And also now merging this creative side of myself that has found so much joy in writing and creative expression Mm -hmm. and merging those to help others see that you can have hospitality and you can show up fully as yourself and you don't need one to determine your worth. Like you don't need the hospitality to determine your worth or value and how you show up. And one thing that that evolution of coming out as a writer has brought for me is that it, that broadened sense of what hospitality is, that it's not about hosting an event or serving someone food or giving someone a place to sleep, but it's that bigger lens of just how we meet other people and engage with them and make them feel seen mm. and feel valued and cared for. <sighs> just a deep breath into thanking you for offering <laughs> such a vulnerable answer. And just to say that I feel such a resonance around that. And it's not my wound. To be honest, I'm the one, like I said, I go the opposite way to the degree of I'm a performer. And sometimes I, as a woman in our culture, say, oh, shit, I <laughs> forgot to put out the towels and to, <laughs> I know that's such a minor thing, but I struggle from the other side because as a woman, as a mom, I should be really good at creating spaces and meals and a way for people to come in and feel at home. And my writer performer self is 
very developed. It's who I am. And it means that sometimes I realize I'm like, am I taking too much? I, do I have friends who take too good a care of me? And do I put too much on them because it's easy for them to be the one who's playing hostess and giving too much? I mentioned my husband as the one who makes sure that the you know dinner doesn't get burned because I'm too busy talking. I'll own that in a flip <laughs> on how genders work in our house, I am the one who is just like, oh, whoops. There's a joke at our house that I've never made green beans, mm -hmm. almondine without burning the almonds at least twice <laughs> because that's a Thanksgiving thing, right? And I am so, I have a glass of wine in one hand and I'm talking Lots to everybody. Exactly. And I'm making sure that the conversation keeps going and everyone's laughing and nobody's bored. And then someone says, Marisa, I think there's something burning. So I will own again, part of me feels like, am I being a terrible host that Elizabeth just shared this really intimate, heartfelt thing. And I then told a story about me burning almonds. Like it's just <laughs> such that sense of, wow, we've all come to this with such different gifts, with such different fears around too much and not enough. And the best of friendships and the best of relationships, the best of hospitable situations, I think, come when we can be really honest about this is who I am and what I have to offer and remembering to ask what other people need and being aware of it so that we can show up fully and so that everyone can show up fully and safely and be seen. It's one of the things that I find important about broadening this lens of hospitality is that it's it's not about the food that's going to be on your table or if you've burned the almonds, which we've all done. But have you been able to meet someone where they're at? Have you seen them for who they are? Yeah. Whether it's seeing a, a wound that they have that might be triggering mm -hmm. or seeing them for their pronouns that they like to use and recognizing that and respecting that or just seeing them with a smile as you pass by them on the street like there's this element that isn't dependent on what you do in that moment it's just seeing them mm -hmm. and then that welcome or that invitation to to engage, to go deeper, to respond with a smile, to have a conversation, to share a glass of wine or remake a meal if you need to, because you've burned it. Or give someone permission to call out for takeout. <laughs> it's those really are the best friends that already have the takeout, you know, on speed dial. <laughs> <laughs> But there's so much hospitality in things that are not about whether or not you burn a Thanksgiving meal or or get to set towels out when someone stays the night. Right. Like if you've been able to welcome them into your space and and care for them, meet them where they're at and care for them in some way, that is an expression of hospitality. Mm -hmm. And that's I think we would all feel more validated in saying, yes. I might not be great at hosting dinner parties, but I can still express hospitality in my own way because of my gifts, my gifts as a writer or as a performer or 
as a friend or as a mother. Yeah. Uh, well, Elizabeth, it feels important to note that I feel like I've had my I've had my hands on my heart for the last several minutes, and that in and of itself feels like just testament to being in your presence and feeling like the sense of being welcome and at home. And as we close, we'll, we'll close with a welcome in, it feels important to mention that the Irish word for welcome is falcha, which is in many ways, if you, you only know a, one or two words of Irish, it's slancha, which means to your health that you say at a toast, but it's falcha that's written on the pub door and anywhere else where they're bidding you mm. welcome. Well, thank you for welcoming me here today and for this lovely conversation on hospitality. Yes. Thank you, Elizabeth. Can you tell people a little bit more about where to find you and your work? Yes, you can find me on the web at elizabethcshaw.com. And you can learn more there about my writing, creative expressions, and how I consult around hospitality, whether it's hospitality for your service business or an event or just showing up more hospitably in your own life. Oh. Elizabeth, you are such a gift. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you for holding space for me and for Ethna and for Bucket because even he, the consummate host, needs someone to hold space for him. So thank you for helping me do that today. Yes, might we all aspire to be a cauldron of hospitality. Thank you for listening to Not Work Storytelling. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, my courses, and how to work with me as a coach, as well as my online community, The Heroine's Knot, at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram, at Knotwork Podcast, and join our listeners group on Facebook. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, Ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.